Oh man. I do. It is good that, um, I feel bad cause I can't remember the name of our listener who, uh, the recent person who joined the discord and reminded me to go look at what was going on with P and O fairies. But, uh, uh, one of the many reasons why I'm glad that we have the discord is because I read like so many fucking articles every week that, uh, thankfully the listeners have pointed us towards, Hey, what happened with this story? I was like, Oh, that's a good point. We should go back and look at what happened with this story. Yeah, yeah, and I that. see from how many hyperlinks there are under this <laughs> header that uh, there was, in fact, quite a bit still going on with this Yeah, story. it's that, and then, like, some sort of uh, union news comes up, and I decide I want to go through the history of some union leader and determine why they're a fucking class collaborationist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I don't know. That was just a uh, another moment of being like, damn, I'm really glad we have the Discord, and this would kind of make the show so much harder (laughs) if we didn't oh my god if we didn't have the discord i mean would we even have you on the show you know that's no a good question (laughs) that's actually true i mean like it was originally because and i i I don't know if i've told this story on air before but basically we were doing all of these news episodes and i we were starting to get to the point where dan was the one who was posting all the articles that we were covering (laughs) uh because like we originally were doing all of the research, going in, doing the Google searches and all that. And then all of a sudden it became so much easier because <laughs> all of the articles were right there in the Discord. And I'm like, hey, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. And we did Mario Kart with him and he seemed pretty cool. <laughs> so so let's, uh, let's bring him on. Turns out, smart dude. <laughs> yeah. That, that's the the real proletarian interview process is, is Mario <laughs> Kart Club. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. God, I should start hosting that again. It's just so tough. My life is so full of things right now. And uh, honestly, I couldn't be happier because the listeners seem happy. <laughs> and uh, I'm too tired to be able to tell if the product I'm cranking out <laughs> is good or not. Well, um, uh, since you're having a tough time telling, uh, right now, That's the time for the intro. That's right. So, uh... If, uh, if if you want to lend a hand to the show and point us towards some extremely uh, interesting topics, you can just post them in the Discord. It's free to get in there. And if you want to do something that's not free, you could throw us a little bit of money on Patreon. We would really appreciate it because the show is entirely listener-supported. What show am I talking about? Of course, this is an episode of Work Stoppage, your favorite labor podcast. And if you want to prove that it's your favorite labor podcast, you can write a review on the side of an Amazon truck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think that amounts to a call to action. But, you know, it's a fun thought experiment, but don't actually do it. Uh, <laughs> Post it on your uh, grocery store uh, community board. Yeah. <laughs> Write something that looks like a notes app apology but is actually a glowing review of our show and then post it to Twitter with just the words, I'm sorry over it. Uh, <laughs> really right. frighten your friends. Uh, <laughs> but but so as we were alluding to uh, in the, the open there, our first story 
this week is we're checking back in on really the fallout that's been caused by the P&O Ferries scandal over in the UK, where folks will remember, if you listened to the episode a couple weeks ago, that P&O, which is one of the biggest ferry companies in the UK, both for passengers and for freight, decided, nah, fuck it, and to just lay off basically their entire sailing staff and replace them with contract workers so they could pay them less than minimum wage and not have to actually pay unionized workers anymore. That also was illegal. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> just like in, a, in the U.S., U.K. labor law seems to mostly be fake, at least the parts that would put any sort of restrictions on employers. Um, I did appreciate, John, you posted a... Uh, a video that that we we saw of the P&O ferries like i don't know if it was their ceo or one of their mm-hmm. like executive officers or somebody from the board who's just being excoriated by various members of the UK government like being like so you just you just decided to break the law like you just think that's okay and as as gratifying as it was to see that because that never fucking happens in the US it still doesn't really change the fact that, yeah, they had to go and get yelled at, but they still were able to break the law with seemingly no consequences for them. But there have mm-hmm. been some pretty major consequences to the people of the UK, like not just the people that they fired, but really the entire public. Because when they did this, when they fired all of their workers, like 800 employees and said, no, it'll be fine. We're going to hire all these contract workers. We're going to shut down for a week. We're going to get everything right back up. It'll be fine. Um, that has not gone the way that they presented it, uh, hmm. shockingly. Um, huh. And three weeks later, their their ferry fleet is still nowhere near back to the operational capacity that it used to be at. Like, one of the, the big problems has been that since they replaced their entire crew... Each ship had to be recertified as safe to sail that like they had to go through all these checks to make sure that, you know, the the new employees knew all the emergency procedures, how to deal with a problem at sea and all that stuff. And so they've had two of their ferries detained after failing safety checks since (laughs) this crew turnover. And like (sighs) there was a one of the recently hired contract crew people interviewed, um, by I think Sky, I'm not sure. We had a bunch of sources for this. Said that there was an atmosphere of panic on board the ferry, the Pride of Kent, in the 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 speed at which they were told to you know get the ferry back up to operational capacity. And yeah, I, I I love learning emergency procedures on extremely specific equipment uh, at a very very rapid pace in order to get the ferry back on the water as soon as possible. That's ex- that that makes me feel good. I don't know what this panic <laughs> yeah. is all about. Right, <laughs> and and so I mean, obviously, you know, that's just two of them. I mean, the rest of them are probably fine except no uh there are still five that require inspections and only one is cleared to sail one yeah yeah and this is so like this is of pno's passenger ferry fleet which is like eight of these these are really big ferries and yeah as you, as you said Lena, only one of them is actually operational three weeks after this when they said they would be done in one week. And so like in addition to these 800 people who lost their jobs and were forced to take this shitty severance package that they got from the company and then go look for new work. In addition to that already horrific story, you now have like people in the UK being unable to leave the Island. Like, uh, 
they've gotten to the point where the highway stretching down to the English, like the ports on the English Channel, there's a 23 mile long stretch that had a lane shut down by the government in order for it to basically be turned into a parking lot for freight trucks because there's so much backed up at the ports because largely of P&O's ferries being shut down that it's now taking 30 or more hours for from when these trucks get to the port to when they can actually get on a ferry to cross over into France. Yeah, and I wonder uh, what sort of like situation this is for those truck drivers because i know i mean there are probably different minimum wage laws or whatever but like in the united states sometimes people are paid by the mile Mm -hmm. and if it takes two uh, over or i mean over a day to actually get through and move 23 miles you're basically not being paid i don't know like i guess because this is not we didn't actually go into the how the the truck drivers are affected more so than this uh you know highway shut down and the the backup but i guess that would be interesting to to know as well yeah like i would hope they're getting paid but that was that was a big problem like we saw and may still be and they just may not still be reporting on it but when there was everybody was up in arms about the supply chain problems at u.s ports one of the things people were talking about was exactly what you said about the people like who are sitting in line waiting at like the port of los angeles or long beach or any of the big western Mm -hmm. ports And while they're sitting there, they aren't getting paid anything. And so if the UK situation is like that, I I honestly would get to the point where I'm like, I'm surprised we didn't see truckers just being like, nah, fuck it. And just like abandoning like the load. Cause, but if you're not getting paid, why do you want to sit there on a, on the highway for two days? Oh my God. For two fucking days, instead of, I don't know, eating dinner with your family and sleeping Mm -hmm. in your bed, uh, which, you know, you don't get paid for either, but they're pretty nice. Uh, and then, you know, what is the, uh, what is the British government's response to all this? So they, they, the, they gave him a pretty strong dressing down. I have to yes. admit, I, I appreciated the stern rebuke, <laughs> but, uh, are there any plans on the horizon to fine the company or I, force I mean, them to reinstate workers? I'm or? pretty sure pithy comments are the only things that the UK government has. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it's certainly the 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 most deadly weapon that the Tories are willing to unleash upon companies. And considering the current state of the Labor Party, I really wouldn't expect a lot more from them if they'd been in power. But um, like the there's been some hinting towards legislation to make it so easier for them to enforce minimum wage laws mm-hmm. on companies operating within UK waters. But there hasn't actually been action regarding that just a lot of talk and like there was a quote that the financial times reported about this where they said while the government expressed shock the company would in effect buy its way out of the law lawyers call this an efficient breach and it's not as uncommon as ministers might like to think employment rights are all for sale there's a price tag on every single one of them one lawyer told me Jesus Christ. <laughs> so so if if you can convince the government that it's profitable to do it, you can just tell workers to go fuck themselves and and say the law doesn't matter. Mhm. Yeah, I mean more or less, which I I mean as as awful as it sounds, mostly just kind of puts UK labor law relatively in line with US labor law <laughs> cuz yeah. I mean how much mu- how many times we talk about like we certainly encourage unions to file unfair labor practice charges. It's an important part of union organizing, but like, what has been the consequence to Starbucks 
for f- illegally firing all these workers. Not very much so far. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, and, the workers themselves have had to provide yeah. the consequence in mm-hmm. many cases. Oh, yeah. And the union leadership has responded to this as well. We have uh, Trade Union Council General Secretary Francis O'Grady, who sums it up very similarly to what you just said. He says, um, a lack of enforcement will kick the legs out from under the government's minimum wage plans. Our weak enforcement regime lets rogue employers like P&O ride roughshod over fundamental workers' rights. Britain is in the midst of a crisis of enforcement that goes well beyond the maritime industry. If ministers fail to deliver the employment bill again, they will be toadying up to bad bosses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of that of that video we referred to earlier where the, the business owner or whatever, the representative of the business was just like, uh, well, we we just thought that the business was going to close if we didn't do this. And I'm just like, look at all of the shit that you're doing right now. Not only did you have to pay out those those severances, which basically would have gone to keeping the place going, but also you have to train all these new people. You have all these immense shutdowns. Pretty sure this is putting P&O at more of a risk. Although, I mean, I guess I shouldn't uh, discount how much they're going to be uh, grinding these workers into a paste. Yeah, I and... I, one thing that I did find, though, like one last bit on this that was interesting is that so the vast, vast majority of the employees at P&O who were fired took the severance package that was offered by the company. They signed their I think they had to sign an NDA, which is relatively common in this sort of situation, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But there's one one employee of the 800 who were fired who is not taking the severance and has actually chosen instead to sue P&O Ferries. Uh, John Lansdowne, who was a chef on the Pride of Canterbury, is suing P&O for 76 million pounds for, quote, violating his dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, and humiliating environment. Which, like, on the one hand, I, you know... I always want to temper any optimism about the efficacy of uh, courts in bourgeois situations like this. Mm-hmm. But all that being said, everything that we've read about the situation of these people being fired, an intimidating, hostile, degrading, and humiliating environment sounds like a pretty fucking accurate description to me. Yeah. yeah. And he emphasized in, in interviews that he's given since, you know, filing suit, he said, quote, this is not just about me. 799 of my seafaring family have lost their livelihoods, their way of life, their homes for half the year, and it's about the bigger picture. And so, obviously, it's hard to be extremely optimistic about the potential for this lawsuit just because, you know, the whole system of law in any capitalist country is weighted against individuals. But I do think that it's it's good to see that somebody is actually taking them to court. I'm not certainly not blaming the workers who to took the severance package. Like if they're like many of the other people in the working class who live paycheck to paycheck or almost that about, it's not very easy to, you know, turn down a severance package that might give you that chance to be able to have some semblance of a normal life while you find a new career. That being said, I appreciate that somebody's at least making their lawyers do some fucking work for when, cause we, you know, we know that the Tory government isn't actually going to hold them accountable and, and, and it's good that the unions are holding protests and it's obviously, you know, good to point out how much of a fucking wrench this has thrown into Britain's ability just to move people and goods around. But, uh, it, unfortunately, you know, I don't think we're going to see a lot of government action 
So I'm glad there's at least some sort of legal attack on these folks. Yeah, I mean, if he gets even one of those 76 million pounds, you know, uh, it'll probably be a bigger fine than P&O will face from the actual government itself. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. if this shakes out anything like it normally does in the United States. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, speaking of things shaking out in the United States, we're going to move to another follow-up on the WTTW PBS workers in Chicago, where they've ended their three-week strike with a contract that leaves a lot to be desired. I mean, the statement by the union has basically said uh, there were significant gives to the company, <laughs> and uh, or is, is yeah, 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 and basically that is that is not a, an underestimate of what has gone on here. The healthy economic package that that the union was b- boasting, or or Brett Lyons Lyons. Lions, probably. Uh, Brett Lyons uh, was uh, the business the business representative of local twelve twenty. I was actually just talking to Dan about this before. Why are they called business representatives? They don't. Re- <laughs> they're not supposed to represent the business. That's a dumb title. Uh, but anyway, we're not going to get into that too much. Basically, the union has won a three percent pay hike upon ratification and two point five percent annual raises in July through twenty twenty four. Uh, that seems lower than inflation. Yeah, I mean, that's not even a a very significant raise, like, in normal times when you have your average, because average inflation is, like, 2 to 3% Mm -hmm. in, in in a normal year. So that's basically, like, a cost of living adjustment during a normal situation. But we're at 8.5% year on year inflation now. So that's, uh, not a particularly exciting raise. Uh, and it, you know, it's got the standards. Oh, it's got a signing bonus and a, and an, another bonus in there. But again, uh, could have like one-time bonuses are usually, usually a bribe, like yeah. more, more than anything. It's, like, it's yeah. a sign of not a lot of gains to come in many cases. <laughs> They're basically saying here, please take this. And then like my favorite part is when the union put out a statement and they said included in this new agreement are full-time staff hiring guarantees, which will partially protect mm-hmm. the size of the IBEW bargaining unit, as well as fair economic gains. Local 1220 made multiple concessions so that the company would be able to genuinely compete in the future. This is paining me to read with commercial television stations in the Chicago land market. One, you are PBS. You don't need to compete with mm-hmm. pub, with with commercial television stations. That's really the whole point of why you exist. Two, what the fuck is partially protecting <laughs> the size of the bargaining unit? That is well, some fucking nonsense. There's actually a specific uh, term in the contract that says that they are going to hire on two full-time workers. Uh, <gasps> this is of 23 workers. But the one thing that the union knows is that there are three retiring workers happening basically this year. Ooh. So even just this year, they're taking a 33% cut on that particular boost. Yeah, so that partial protection, that's really more like a partial diminishment. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, like you know, you never want to be overly harsh on this, but almost everything that I've we've read about this contract seems like concessions. Like, just to come out with it, it really seems like, unfortunately, this 
the, this contract is mostly a loss for, for the employees because as we talked about, you know, when we originally covered the start of this strike, the primary issue that the workers were fighting over was to protect union work, was to make sure that jobs that were classed as union jobs stayed classed as union jobs to prevent the station management from encroaching on that and eating away at what was supposed to be union work and replacing it with cheaper non-union work. And ultimately, this contract doesn't really do that. Like, I, I, and I, you know, I'm not blaming the workers for that, but like, one of the things that that was in here was that like the new contract allows the station to hire up to one part-time employee each week per job classification <laughs> including floor crew technicians maintenance and graphic artists uh, part-time employees are going to be limited to 32 hours a week uh, although that is only for news employees and not for folks that are working on documentary or non-news production employees which the there's no, which there's no restriction on people working in those particular right. parts of the work right so what 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 is described by the union as partially protecting union work really to me reads more like okay so we had this pie this circle and this is what is represented by union work and we let the company take a big fucking slice out of it but we're going to champion this as look we protected the rest of the pie and i'm like yeah but you're the ones who do all the work yeah famously, <laughs> you should have the whole fucking pie <laughs> famously giving up chunks of something is a great way to protect it. is there any historical precedent <laughs> where that has worked where like yeah. placating no. A hungry, controlling power <laughs> by giving them some of the thing they want. Has that ever stopped them from taking the rest in the history of fucking ever? <laughs> right. And uh, I mean, obviously not. But but I think that if we keep going over what sort of protections they've lost, uh, originally they were trying to make sure that there could not be like uh, basically scab labor or non-union labor used for uh, covering cases. And they actually have a specific like mile radius for how much that can be enforced. I mean, management originally wanted to reduce the uh, current 200-mile radius of that down to 60 miles, uh, though uh, what they've managed to protect is for documentary videos, they keep the 200-mile radius, but for others, it's down to an 80-mile radius. Like, that's, like, seriously, that's so much, like, land that basically is just no longer protected by the union. Yeah, and the... the like 80% of what union members actually shoot falls into that second category, that non-documentary, like, quote, news category. Yeah, and, like, I mean, they cited... This one was... I, I think this one mostly just made me feel bad about the general state of labor law in the U.S. where they, they pointed out, a, they called a major victory in the contract securing the ability to donate sick leave to other union members who have used all their own leave, which... Yo, you should just have more leave. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, look, if you didn't have that ability before and you have it now, I suppose that's an improvement. But, like, that's starting from such a low point that, yeah. like, it seems like, like such a trivial victory, not a major victory, considering 
nobody should be put in that situation in the first place. That, I mean, it's just one of those things where it's like, this isn't even something we should be discussing, right? Like, if people don't have the fucking sick time that they need, we need to get us all more sick time. Exactly. There's, you don't need to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. You don't need to be, like, taking things out of one union member's pocket to put it into another. You don't need to be taking funds out of their healthcare plan to put into their wages. You need to just give them more. And if you're the workers, you need to just fucking demand more and tell them where it should come from. You know, tell them it should come from the CEO salary or the CFO salary or whatever. Yeah. Right. I'm glad you highlighted, you know, the fact that this isn't just any random station, that this is a PBS station. Mm -hmm. Because, like, some of these quotes we have from the leadership, like John Rizzo, that business manager of Local 220 or 1220, said, It's not great, but it is fair. In the end, we've achieved a much better contract than where we began, which... I don't know if I believe that, but, and then like the station in a statement said the terms of our new contract effective today, embrace change and new ways of working are critical to our collective and continued success will protect and create jobs and are in line with the contracts of other media companies across the city and country. Create what jobs? You just admitted to losing jobs. No, but they're (laughs) creating non-union like part-time jobs where people won't get any benefits and will have to take a second job to survive. So they're creating two jobs for each of those employees. And I don't understand a lot about the way that this particular local is structured, but all of these people with business manager are in the, in their titles are actually the people who are at the head of this organization and the president makes no money. I don't, that's, that's one thing that is a little confusing to me. Uh, though I'm, I'm not trying to just go in to critique that particular part besides just the weird titles. The weird titles are just getting to me. Yeah. Now, and if we're going to critique particular parts, I mean, what about the, the company bragging that the contract is in line with the contracts of other mm-hmm. media companies across the city and country? That's not a fucking brag. You're a PBS station. You should not be in line with other media companies across the country because you are fundamentally fucking different. And like... Also, the state of media companies' union contracts is incredibly fucking sorry. So, like, yeah. it's like, oh, check it out. We, we're, we're in line with the standard. The standard is mm-hmm. garbage. It's horseshit. Well, and what I want to say is that when they say that they did better from when, where they started, does that mean that the union began with a concessionary contract? Like, the union's first proposal was a concessionary contract? How in the fuck do you start from something that is a loss? Well, because that's the thing. It's like if people have listened to our recent series on like labor history on the decline of U.S. unionism, so much of this sort of language, the whole like it's not great, but we preserve jobs like, you know, we had to give some stuff up, but we had to do it to maintain the competitive balance of the company. That is the exact same stuff. You were hearing from in the 80s and the 90s and I mean really since in all of these concessionary contracts after concessionary contracts that were done in in major industries, you know, the UAW giving concessions to Chrysler and then breaking up pattern bargaining and all this stuff. And every time they said that it was in the it was in the line of this is a temporary giveaway so that we can make the company more competitive and then the company will do better and we'll get better. And that hasn't happened because when you give the companies an inch, then they're like, next time we're taking two inches. Next time we're taking four inches because they like the company understands 
the, the operational advantage, the structural advantage that they have in these bargaining things that allows them to take that longer view of like any concession we can squeeze out of these guys, we will have forever. And that's why it's so vital to push back against that. And like, mm -hmm. I, for one, to look at the way that I'm sure that the, this affected the actual workers, because one of the things we mentioned as a quick hit headline last time was the fact that at the end of last month, the company did cut the healthcare for these workers, including at least one who they, they mentioned was receiving cancer treatment. And so like, I am not going to blame that person or, you know, the people that wanted them to be able to get healthcare for being like, Hey, we need to sign this so I can get my healthcare back. I totally get that. But I do blame the leadership of the union for like spinning it this way. Like if you really think that you don't have the strength, to win a, a better contract by staying out on strike longer because you have people who need that health care, then be honest about it. <laughs> like, yeah, because they're putting on a face. They're, they're, they're saying, yeah. Oh no, this is, this is okay. No, no, it's fine. And don't worry. They're just, just, uh, you know, we need to, you know, put our heads, keep our heads down and just like take what we can get. And like, what the fuck kind of union is that? Yeah. So it's a dishonest I mean, union, honestly. Yeah. And it's like, I always, I, I, always want to try and be fair, you know, to any of these. I don't ever want to be like this, this strike didn't, you know, <laughs> result in the station being turned into a worker co-op or, or, or being seized by the right. workers in an occupation. Therefore it's a failure because that's a ridiculous ultra left line to take. Yeah. I, don't I was just going to say that sounds like some infantile disorder I've heard of before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, but, but also we, we so rarely go in on a contract like this because so often the kind of concessions that we end up covering and because of the recent rise and more of a rank and file uh, method, or if there are things to critique, it's generally like one or two little things. This contract is bad all over. Like, yeah, like that's that's I, just how it is. Yeah, it, it's unfortunately this is one of those situations where, I, yeah, this ultimately I think this this is a big loss for the the workers at WTTW, and that this is going to put them in a more difficult bargaining position for their next contract. So, I mean. Yeah, it's it it kind of just sucks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't really, unfortunately, don't really have a silver lining for right. this story. Let's just we can let's you know take a deep breath and move on. All right, in Finland, twenty five thousand healthcare workers have gone on strike and are threatening to include another fifteen thousand workers if their demands are not met. Uh, <laughs> Strong tactic. Hey, we're on strike, and if you don't meet our demands, we'll get them to strike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the way this is, I I really appreciate the way some of the stuff's been handled in, in this strike that I've been reading about. Um, yeah, because this, this, this strike started on, on April 1st, the same day that we had the, you know, the ALU and, and Starbucks NYC roastery victories where, as you said, 25,000 hospital workers across six different hospital districts, including the capital in Helsinki, ha have been on strike. And they so now they've been on strike for almost two weeks protesting. You'll be shocked to hear the issues they're dealing with the, these healthcare workers. Uh, COVID. Yeah. Safe staffing. Huh? Hey, <laughs> we got it immediately. Short staffing, overwork, and insufficient wages as well as not being properly com compensated for working through COVID. And, and so this strike is being led by two unions, the Finnish Union of Practical Nurses, which in Finnish is abbreviated super. Um, Hell yeah. 
<laughs> and the Union of Health and Social Care Professionals, which is abbreviated uh, T-E-H-Y, or I guess Tay. I, I assume you don't actually say it as a word, but... Um, <laughs> and so they've been negotiating with... Because this is the thing where they, you have it's, like... It's they, but in Finnish. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and so they've been negotiating with the Finnish state on a new contract for healthcare workers for months, and a national mediator had proposed a, a new like option after those negotiations hit a snag, and yet they'd refused to do anything to address the short staffing problem, which is what prompted these workers to go on strike. And they've specifically identified <laughs> this is this is the you know one of those things where I think it's important to point out. It's like the reason we see these exact same issues everywhere else is because you know. Workers of the world have the same class interests, and so Whoa. they're going to pop up over and over again in very no similar conditions. <laughs> um, <laughs> My brain. <laughs> but so, yeah, like they mentioned specifically how the healthcare workers in Finland were lauded and have been, you know, held up as heroes. Uh, and yet there's been no material recompense for for any of their incredibly hard and, and difficult work during the pandemic like there's a we have a quote here from pertu makala of the confederation of skilled workers in the public sector who said it is often mentioned how important public sector work for example in the social welfare sector is however this is not really reflected anywhere the appreciation should also be evident in our pay slips wow way to just go straight to the point i love that <laughs> yeah put it in the pay slip <laughs> yeah and the and to be clear, these workers are not asking for like d a doubling of their wages, even though they probably deserve it. They're asking for a raise in nurses' salaries by an additional three and a half percent over five years. So they're only asking for a 0.7% increase in wages over what was offered by the government. So that's not a huge amount. And to emphasize, like, the condition of nurses and, and healthcare workers generally in Finland, you know, just comparatively, cause you know, it's a different country. So, but like nurses in Finland earn about 600 euros less per month than the average Finnish worker and 20% less than nurses in neighboring Nordic countries. So like they are quite underpaid for the dangerous and vital work that they do. Yeah. And, uh, one of the things about the safe staffing issues is that, 30,000 healthcare workers are expected to retire soon, and there is no public plan to actually replace them. So they're not only dealing with intensified conditions in this current situation, but they're looking at extremely intensified conditions in the coming years, assuming that a plan isn't put into place. And so they're trying to get out ahead of this and be like, no, we need a plan to actually get mm -hmm. more people into these jobs. Yeah. And so, like, as you said, they've already, I, I love that you, st they started the strike with, this is how many people we're striking with 25,000 workers. That's a lot of workers. Yeah. Like that would be an enormous strike in the U S and Finland is much smaller than the U.S., and yet already right out the gate, they're like, and if you don't agree to our demands, in two weeks, 15,000 more healthcare workers will join our strike. Like, <laughs> I love that strategy. I think it's fantastic. And we have, like, a quote from the vice president of the Communist Party of Finland, Mervi Grunfors. I don't actually know how you pronounce umlauts, but... Well, and then, like, Finnish it doesn't, like, conform to the other, 
like traditions of the other Scandinavian languages because they're all North Germanic and Finnish is Finno-Ugric, which isn't even an Indo-European language. So it's literally more different from English, Spanish, French, and German than like Arabic or even Chinese, depending on how you you quantify it. So yeah, so I apologize for the pronunciation, but yeah, so they they uh, uh, were talking about like and because they're also a trade unionist in the the TEHY union, mm-hmm. and they said that, quote, the demand for wage increases by low-paid public sector workers is justified. The wage level in the sector is disproportionately low due to the ever-increasing cost of living. Because that's the other thing, is that, like, inflation right now is not just a problem in the U.S. It's, especially since the war in Ukraine started, been a massive global problem that, of course, businesses and even, you know, governments have been slow to respond to. And, like... (sighs) Unfortunately, and I didn't just bring up the war in Ukraine to talk about the inflation, we've seen the response from the Finnish government to this strike. Uh, the, the chief medical officer of the Helsinki Hospital District, Marku uh, Makijarvi, I'm 100% sure that's wrong, um, who compared the strike to the invasion of Ukraine Basically <laughs> calling the strike an illegal attack on the Finnish healthcare system. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, people who uh, are struggling to make a point really cannot stop invoking Ukraine, can they? It's like, uh, you know, <laughs> they're not even striking over that big of an increase, like we said. It's, it's like it's not even a 1% jump from what they were offered. And they're like, Hey, we're really, really serious about getting this pay increase. And he's like, this union is Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's ridiculous. Like you're just going to jump right to that from like, like this is the equivalent of like in the U S although I'm sure Democrats in the U S are going to start doing the same thing, but it'd be like, if like, the 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 president of a hospital called stri- the the striking workers at like St. Vincent's we covered for so many months uh-huh. they called them terrorists for yeah. striking or something it's it's basically what they're saying it's it's ridiculous i mean they they said this it's possible that if something happens we may not be able to help it is impossible to treat all patients in such a situation and like my brother in christ you're the one who caused the strike <laughs> exactly <laughs> like I like I know we've we've invade against this sort of like concern trolling that that especially in the healthcare sector is done at every single time there is a strike but it's particularly rich and gross of them to do it here because as a part of their strike plan the union specifically carved out an exception for certain members of their union to provide a skeleton staff to hospitals and maintain emergency services. So they didn't start the strike being like, everybody's on strike. We're closing down all the ERs. They, they took the initiative to say, we understand that we need to have the ERs open. And so we will make sure there is a minimum number of people there. And they're still rolling out this same tired argument. Yeah, it's well, it's so crazy that the actual workers in the hospital understand which parts of the hospital still (laughs) need to be functioning even during the strike. That's fucking crazy. And then, like, the Finnish government trying to not just label the union as, like, you're Vladimir Putin, you're, like, a terrorist (laughs) for doing this. Uh, They're also saying that the pay demands, which, again, are not that steep, uh, are unsustainable for public finances and that they would lead to increased public debt and higher rates of taxation okay 
Let them. I want good health care. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Uh, health care costs money. It requires people out there doing the work, and uh, we need to be putting the investment in there. And if the workers say that they need more money to do the job, then you give them more, mo- more fucking money. That's it. Yeah, I thought you were a robust social democracy, Finland. Just tax and fucking spend already. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. It, Wait, maybe and, you should look at the Nordic model or something like that. Yeah. You ever heard yeah, of it? I mean, this is what happens when you have social democracies that don't have, you know, your big actual socialist country right next door mm-hmm. uh, putting pressure on them, unfortunately. Uh, and And to top it all off, you have, in addition to these asinine complaints and concern trolling responses, you actually have the state moving to write a new law to ban this sort of strike and force nurses to go back to work under the threat of legal action because of, you know, needs to quote, ensure patient safety. Yeah. Which well, there's the, there's your, there's your repressive state apparatus folks. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and that same thought, and actually almost... Speaking uh, of the repressive state apparatus. Yeah, like a lot of, uh, <laughs> lot of different uh, kind of parallels between that past story and this one, and specifically with the Ukraine situation, there is a particular uh, union that has been doing a lot of anti-imperialist protests saying, hey, let's keep weapons out of Ukraine because obviously war does not create more peace. Like, mm-hmm. uh, we're, and they're out there on the, the you know, protest lines saying, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and so what happens, the, the police come in and then they plant a fucking gun on the premises. Yeah. <laughs> So this story is, I mean, this is a very, I mean, if you've listened to our episodes on the repressive state apparatus, this does have some mild shades from the Gladio episode. Um, But this is a very Italy story where like, because we've, we've, as you said, this, this union, Unione Sindicale de Base, who we've, we've, which I also did probably didn't pronounce right, who we've talked about a couple of times. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. Yeah. like for doing protests at the Pisa airport, as well as the port of Genoa to try and stop arms shipments, not only to Ukraine, but also to the Saudis to, you know, stop them from being used in the genocidal war in Yemen. And so these protests have have made this union a bit of a thorn in the side of the Italian government. And so the Carabinieri, which is basically like the national armed police in, in Italy, they just did this random raid, uh, on Wednesday, April 6th of the national headquarters of the union. And they, they found a gun wrapped in cellophane in the tank of a toilet in the union's bathroom. Oh my God. These, these union members were going to use this one gun in the (laughs) toilet of a bathroom to shoot. What would they shoot? <laughs> yeah, uh, this is in why their I own encourage- union hall. Yeah, that's this is why I encourage all people to check toilet seat, check, check toilet uh, tanks because there is almost definitely a cop who's planted a gun in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, it's just this is such a cliche concept. Like, yeah, they, oh, they did the the maneuver from The Godfather where you hide a gun <laughs> in the toilet tank. That, that's definitely a thing that this union would do in real life for some reason. Italian and, police be showing up at the union hall like, I reach behind your ear. I pull out, oh, it's a gun. <laughs> in cellophane wrap. 
<laughs> yeah, and and so of course, like the union and 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 a bunch of different left wing groups and, and parties have have denounced this as clearly planted by the government in order to create a pretext to shut the union down and stop their protests. Of course. And, and, and so, like, there was a, a quote here directly from a statement from the union where they said, quote, the premises of the Via del Aeroporto are daily open to the public like all USB offices. Certainly the last place to hide something, let alone weapons. The only weapons that USB uses are strikes, demands, demonstrations, and struggles. We leave the guns to those who love them, starting with the compact majority that fuels the, the war in Ukraine. Hell yeah, tell them. I mean, shit, you're literally uh, doing union actions to stop the movement of weapons. And the cops are like, I have an idea. <laughs> Let's act like they have a weapon. <laughs> yeah. And and so, of course, like the, the Communist Youth Front and the Communist Refoundation Party in Italy also denounced the raid. Uh, and they called on workers to support the union and continue to oppose NATO's actions and the movement of weapons through Italian ports and, and airports. And they also pointed out that, like, this is not the first instance of government, of state or parastrate repression recently on unions, because, like, as we discussed last fall, there was a fascist attack on the headquarters of the General Confederation of Labor yep. in Rome, where the police just stood aside and let it happen, didn't do anything. And so, like, this has kind of been a bit, becoming a bit of a trend for the the Draghi government in in. Italy, and so there's a statement from the Communist Youth Front who said, the climate in which this provocation occurs is that of an Italy in which unionists are killed during strikes and in workplaces. Anti-union violence increases, the exploitation of workers, and the repression of those who raise their heads. And, you know... Uh, for anybody who's studied 20th, 20th century history at all, that stuff happening in Italy is usually not a good sign. So, uh, yeah. I mean, props to this union for standing strong and for the, the left-wing parties sticking up for them in the face of what is a clear, like, provocation by the cops. You got to give it up for the Italian unionists and uh, communists in general. They have, they have seen a lot of shit, and as a mm -hmm. result, they do not hold back when provoked. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, uh, back on over to the United States, we're looking at some news that's been going around about people's hope for reforms in the NLRB, where the general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, uh, has been calling for things like uh, ending the Joyce Silk doc Doctrine, which I think is something that we covered quite a few episodes ago, uh, this time calling for the end of captive audience meetings, saying this license to coerce is an anomaly in labor law inconsistent with the act's protection of employees' free choice. It's based on a fundamental misunderstanding of employees' speech rights. Oh, yeah. yeah. And because this is basically just much like the Joy Silk stuff that I, th I think we first talked about that back with our interview with Sam Knight mm -hmm. from the District Sentinel. Um, right. But like there's the similarity like between those two cases is basically that originally, very early on after the passing of the NLRA, it was ruled that, OK, you can't do captive audience meetings because it's only presenting one side. You're forcing your employees to listen to your side, not the union side. And that's not fair under the applications of the act. But over the ensuing years, with more and more reactionary members of the NLRB under like even more right wing like administrations that got chipped away at and eventually overturned and instead turned on its head to say, no, it's fine. You can do captive audience meetings. You can fuck around with union elections, et cetera. 
And so like now Abruzzo is basically as general counsel for the NLRB arguing that the board should overturn that and go back to the original legal precedent mm -hmm. that would say that you can't do captive audience meetings because it doesn't provide the opportunity for employees to have free access to both the company and the union's perspective. And also eventually like to try and reinstate like Joy Silk, which would actually put potential real punishments on companies for interfering in union elections beyond what they have now, which is usually nothing. And at worst case, they have to do a redo. Yeah. I mean, like, right. obviously I think that, uh, we should make, you know, captive audience meetings, uh, illegal, but also this kind of rules lawyering doesn't like it could accomplish something here, but it also doesn't like prevent the same backslide from mm -hmm. happening all over again and probably much faster. Uh, mm -hmm. If, like you said, there's there's not some kind of additional rule put in place that enforces this or like better yet, retroactively forces all the companies that engaged in this behavior to recognize their employees unions. But, you know, a man <laughs> can dream, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, but also one of the things that uh, has struck me about these calls for reform is that they're all based in memos and i am not i'm not sure even how these particular rules change is it congress that needs to pass a law to uh, like amend the nlrb or how is it that this actually comes to pass so the way that this would go the way that abruzzo is recommending is she's recommending the board make an official legal ruling mm -hmm. on interpreting the nlra which would change functionally the way that labor law works for companies. However, like as John was alluding to, because that would be just a, a regulatory ruling by the labor board, the next time a more reactionary labor board gets installed mm -hmm. by a right-wing government, like is probably going to happen in a couple of years, mm -hmm. they can just overturn that again. Right, because this is an entirely presidential appointment mm -hmm. kind of position. Uh, yep. The NLRB is not a democratically elected board. It right. is like, it is put in place by whatever conservative is elected, Democrat or Republican. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a more permanent solution would be to pass like, and this is why you know you have people out there pushing for the passing of the Pro Act because the Pro Act would actually write into U.S. labor law explicitly: you can't do captive audience meetings, you can't fuck with union elections the way that companies have been doing it, amongst all of the other good provisions that are in something like the Pro Act. Which is why the Democrats didn't make a real pushed to pass the pro act and didn't really make much of any protest when Joe Manchin and the other conservative Dems prevented it from being passed. Cause th that was never really their goal to, to get that passed in the first place. Right. And, and so like we're left to rely on these, like if you're, if you're looking for a reform based option, then you're really left to rely on these very like temporary really reforms by the, these rulings by the NLRB. Mm -hmm. And, and so like, I, I don't want us to sound like, overly shitty about this is certainly like yeah, yeah look i hope the board rules that captive audience meetings are illegal i just don't want anyone to get overly excited about this concept because it is very likely that even if this ruling happens which would be great and i hope it does happen that it will be overturned by a future even more right-wing board and that ultimately if we're going to enforce like labor law of any kind in the U S it's going to have to be enforced by the workers and like not by bourgeois institutions that fundamentally don't have the workers best interest 
in mind. Like the way I think we, we are going to have to get used to dealing with captive audience meetings is not to just keep hoping that the NLRB will get rid of them because even if they do, it probably will only last for two years because I think more what we need to look at is tactics for fighting captive audience meetings, like what the ALU did yep. by just going into them and presenting the union's case and calling out the lies of the company and that sort of thing. Yeah. Right, because- I mean, like, Remember, Christians. the workers are the union, and the union does have the power to do that sort of thing. When the workers are there in the meetings, you know, you can mm-hmm. shut it down to the best of your ability. Yeah, Christian Smalls and uh, wh- what's the other guy's name? Derek Palmer. Derek Palmer were, were talking about that in an, in, in an interview that I read where they were saying something to the effect of, like, a lot of these workers don't know that you are legally protected when mm-hmm. you talk back during captive audience meetings and as long as you stay you know like composed and like right. quote unquote like respectful you can ask the most like you know upsetting questions that they don't want to hear and as long as you're you're not like screaming and throwing things around the room you're totally legal legally protected in asking those questions and a lot of times they won't have answers and you'll get you know huge murmurs of agreement from your fellow workers. Like, yeah, I was wondering about that too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So like all this to say that like, look, I hope the NLRB rules there are legal. I hope that the NLRB reinstates Joy Silk, but I, it's, it's, I think it's just important to emphasize that we shouldn't pin our strategies for future organizing Mm -hmm. on these sorts of reforms from very temporary fleeting boards, like, like the, you know, the, the NLRB and that while I hope these things happen, they'd be great. What I think that we, you know, as people who are advocates for the labor movement and people who are actually doing organizing, what we really should be focused on is, is, you know, learning from and deploying these sorts of new tactics that where the, even if, you know, we get a more reactionary board that overturns this and even makes labor law worse, that we've got the sort of grassroots tactics that mm-hmm. can push back against this sort of union busting, even if we don't have those reforms in place. Yeah, well, that, that's like the great lesson of the ALU success, right? Is everybody's just like, wow, I can't believe it. They had so many things stacked against them. Uh, you know, they, they didn't have the backing of a major union. The, you know, the, the company fought they, so hard to not even let Christian Smalls on the premises. How did they win? It's like they went to the shop floor, and went mm-hmm. straight to the workers and got those workers to go to the other workers. And like, surprise, surprise, far and away, the most effective way of getting any kind of change that you want on, on you know, any, any scale, whether you're a shop of five or a, a, a shop of 8,000, you know? Yeah, well, and that's and that's one thing that not to even mention, and I know that we have been talking about this win quite a bit, but uh, when they filed, they filed with basically the minimum number of cards, mm-hmm. which is yep. highly like you know not you, you you basically expect to lose if you if you file for a union election with thirty percent, which is what the or is it thirty three percent? Yeah, a thirty or thirty three percent. Thirty percent. Yeah. Um, and and just because most unions go in there with 70% to even hope for uh, a win but somehow with these wonderful tactics you know, with this one with this one trick you can make the bosses pay <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so like trick. i mean just because you know the ALU's win was so monumental and there's so it's so important that we learn from the the really smart organizing tactics they use we are going to be doing an episode uh, coming up here pretty soon where we 
the whole thing and we're just going to try and dig into everything that we've been able to find out about how their drive was run to try and let our listeners know it's like this is what the ALU organizers have been saying worked for them and this is where we think we can draw lessons to apply broadly across the labor movement and so right. but that's for another time let's move yeah. on with our next story where MIT graduate students have won their union election uh, where I love, I, I know I keep skipping to the end here, but we, and we'll get back to the beginning, but I just love the, the, the college is like, we're very excited to improve conditions. It's like, you know, you were the ones who made them go through the second election in the first place. Yeah. I mean, and this is one that got, it got a decent amount of coverage the day that it happened, but I feel like it's been drowned out by other things, but this was a really big win. Like this was years in the making. Uh, I mean, MIT grad students have been working on this organizing drive for four, maybe even five years at this point that like started with just about a dozen workers. And they've now succeeded in getting representation for a a bargaining unit of 4,000 graduate students who will now be represented by uh, the union, the United Electrical Radio and Machine Workers of America, usually abbreviated UE. Right. And, and one thing to know about uh, UE is that one of the things they boast on their website is being a rank and file union. So yeah, they, they are the generally one of the more, you know, openly class struggle E ish, you know, unions that, that, by American standards anyway. And the other thing that I think is so great about this is that like, this was not a particularly close election. (laughs) This was a really a two to one victory by the, the MIT grad students. They won their election 1,785 for and 912 against. So yeah, nearly two to one, basically a landslide like, and yeah, as we said, like this was after four years of organizing, including students organizing a COVID-19 relief campaign that won student workers extensions of health insurance benefits. They ran a mental health resource campaign that won more and cheaper mental health sessions available for all students, as well as running a campaign to fight against racism and discrimination on, on campus. And this is getting into, it's like when we've talked about like some of the aspects that are so important about organizing, it's fighting for material wins. Even before your union is recognized by the shop, they did that. Uh, openly embracing diversity and the sorts of issues that are sometimes classed as too controversial by, you know, bureaucratic unions, like the, these fight, this fight against racism mm-hmm. and, and all of this clearly, I mean, four years for, especially for student workers, it's a, it's a long time, but it paid off with this landslide win. And so now we've got, you know, one of the, this is maybe the third, I would think biggest bargaining unit win this year behind uh, Columbia and um, the oh, ALU. Oh, with the oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. definitely definitely. Yeah. Well, and to to go back to what I was mentioning with how the uh, the college is deciding. Oh yeah, so it's the the university claims it will immediately begin bargaining in good faith with the union, saying we agree that there are areas where MIT can improve. And we share many of the same goals as the MIT Graduate Student Union. With the election outcome now clear, we will continue to work alongside you to improve MIT for all of our students. And we congratulate, congratulate the current and past members of the MIT GSU 
on there four years of dedicated work and culmination in this election. Like, what the fuck? I, so, I'm so, so, no, all right. So you're, you're like, oh yeah, the union existed the whole time and we just refused to acknowledge it. Like, what kind of fucking statement is that? This is just, uh, yeah. I don't, it, I, it I'm, reminds me a lot of, uh, when we were talking about the Minneapolis teacher strike, when all the various democratic politicians were coming out and being like, we support you. I'm like, you run the city. I know <laughs> you could just choose to give them what you want. What do you mean? You support them. <laughs> like it, and it's the same thing here where they're like, we have share many of the same goals. Well then just do it. You you're the university. <laughs> yeah. It's like, <laughs> like when you, um, there was that clip of Biden speaking that went around recently where he's like, he he says something about the Amazon victory, and then he's like, "Amazon, we're coming for you." And I'm like, "No, you're fucking not. Don't you <laughs> yeah. fucking dare try to take credit for this." And it's a uh, it's it's even kind of more more perverse coming from this university because it's like you are literally the thing they unionized against. <laughs> you don't get yeah. to congratulate them on their hard won victory. You like, could have just acknowledged the union. Oh my God, at any point, you could have just started bargaining with them in good faith. You fucking psychos. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, as annoying and frustrating as that is, it's still great, you know, to see the workers win Mm -hmm. by a landslide. And they've already, you know, the union folks have already been talking about their plans for their first contract, where they're going to be fighting for, you know, as expected, better wages, but also focusing on things like affordable housing and free dental insurance, which, uh, you know, workers do not currently have. So congrats again on the excellent and long and I'm sure arduous organizing campaign by the MIT Grad Student Union. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, long, arduous campaigns, although maybe, (laughs) I mean, it's arduous mostly because of the retaliation. Honestly, we're going to be covering some amazing wins by Starbucks. In our weekly segment, Starbucks unionizing is that no <laughs> yeah. should i read uh, uh, uh no i'm not gonna redo it we're gonna keep that in we would call it like <laughs> oh gosh if this is gonna be a, a segment the the siren song of unions huh get it because oh. their logo is a siren yeah no? all right so yeah i <laughs> mean uh, stupid as hell anyway right, so three <laughs> wait no four no seven nine <laughs> stores have won their union elections uh, uh, uh this uh. past week <laughs> that's a, that's yeah. a count from a Sesame Street. <laughs> yeah. Well, because like I started writing the notes on the say on the first day that they got a few new elections, and then there were more elections, and then there were more elections, Ooh. and then there were more elections. So, like, but before we get into the good part, because this is our last story before the meme review, so I'm gonna front load this with some of the the small amount of crappy news on here, mm. which is that there's been a ton of success for Starbucks workers, but unfortunately, alongside that has come, uh, along with Howard Schultz returning as CEO, a redoubling of illegal retaliatory measures by Starbucks. Howard uh, To the point where, like, we finally got a formal complaint against Starbucks from the NLRB for the illegal firing of the Memphis 7 back in February, uh, which... It took two months just to issue the complaint about the incredibly obvious illegal retaliation. Mm -hmm. And that's just the issuing of the complaint. Like it could be months or even years before that complaint is even resolved into like being forced to rehire somebody or pay them back wages if the company doesn't settle. So I, I I'm glad there's a complaint, but 
Uh, thankfully, the workers are not waiting for the NLRB to get, you know, satisfaction in this case. And they're actually, you know, continuing to fight. And there was a we have a quote here from Nikki Taylor, who was one of the fired workers who told Bloomberg, I'm hoping Howard Schultz is a smart man and he settles. But from the union busting tactics that have continued, I don't think he's going to. We're going to win either way. <laughs> Hell right. yeah. 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 I mean, it honestly, every time we, we do one of these segments and they interview like one of the organizers, I'm always just like, these people fucking get it. They've got the right attitude. And in this case, like, uh, like Nikki Taylor was fired already. So like has already gone through like some of the worst depression you're going to get. And still we're going to win either way. It doesn't matter. I, I, I just it, huge energy. You love to see it. And, and it's one of the gr- things that I, I really appreciate about covering, you know, the Starbucks workers United movement, but Unfortunately, you know, Starbucks has continued their retaliation with a particularly ludicrous example this week where they fired Sharon Gilman, who is a worker organizer in Raleigh, North Carolina, after a sink she was using to wash ditches broke off the wall and fell on her, which you would think, wait, they fired her after a sink fell on her. What's What's the connection? Well, (laughs) the company said the reason they fired her is because she broke the sink on purpose. Yeah, that's exactly like, you know, (laughs) honestly, I've seen uh, people get hurt at Starbucks and then have the management say, "Uh, no, I'm sorry, this was your fault. And then also like when I've seen people like in the hospital like and Starbucks being like, "Hey, when are you coming in?" Like this is just a classic Starbucks tactic from even before the union campaign began. This is common practice. They will do anything to get out of any actual responsibility. I mean, they literally have unsafe work conditions. Someone was injured, and then suddenly they're fired because it's their fault that they were injured. Nothing more fucking Starbucks than that. Yeah, and also yeah. like it's just so implausible that somebody who's actively engaged in an organizing effort in the their workplace would deliberately break a sink not least of all because who takes their anger out on a sink that's just not <laughs> that's not behavior you see normally like most broken sinks come from teenagers sitting on them while trying to smoke a cigarette in the bathroom and that's not what happened here yeah, yeah. i don't even know they don't they I mean, they don't, there's no way that they even have evidence for this. They're just unilaterally saying it. They're putting it out there and they're saying, all right, well, this is the official statement. Therefore, this is the facts. Yeah. But so, I mean, it's bullshit. There is, I mean, but thankfully, as Nikki Taylor correctly said, despite all this and the constant retaliation, the Starbucks Workers United movement continues to just rack up W after W after W when they actually are allowed the opportunity to actually have an election. Because uh, there is a whole bunch more stores that have recently unionized, and we're going to run through them quick here. <laughs> so on Thursday, April 8th, three more stores in upstate New York held election, and continuing the recent trend, they went three for three. At the Dell Chip location in Buffalo, they won 18 to 1, Ooh. becoming the sixth store in Buffalo to unionize. Then right after that, two stores in Rochester also won. 10 to 3 and 13 to 11. That 13 to 11 is the only one of these elections that's even close. Damn, Western New York. Miss just once, please. (laughs) (laughs) And so that made the 11th, 12th, and 13th stores to be recognized out of at that time, 14 elections. Then the next day, there were a bunch more elections. There were three elections in Ithaca, New York, college town. And these are all three of the Starbucks locations in Ithaca. 
and they voted 19 to 1 at the College Ave location, 13 to 1 at the Meadow Street location, and 15 to 1 at the Commons location. Huge landslides at every single one of the stores in Ithaca, making them actually the first city to have every one of their Starbucks stores unionized with Starbucks Workers United. <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, uh, I mentioned last time when I we brought this up that there was just under 200 stores that had uh, that have unions, regardless of whether or not they filed. That number is now 212. <laughs> yeah, it's it's wild. I honestly, I was saying this like when when I saw that those three came out and they all had one vote against. I was like, that's like one manager plant putting on different disguises <laughs> and like running from election to election to vote against the union. Yeah, <laughs> but. I mean, so the organizers in Ithaca said that their efforts were helped not only by input from other Starbucks, which, which you know, gave them insight into the sort of union busting they'd be facing, but they also worked with uh, workers from the Science Center in Ithaca, which had also recently unionized. So I just wanted to throw that stuff in there because you love to see the sort of solidarity, you know, between like, because people working at Starbucks and people working at a science museum, you wouldn't necessarily think, oh yeah, that's obvious. Those people are going to talk together. And so it's it's great to see, you know, workers sharing these organizing tips with each other. Well, that's what's re- one of the things that's really so powerful about all this Starbucks uh, unionizing is that like Starbucks is one of the places where employees from every other business around the Starbucks True. frequently go through. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. It's a hub, and I mean, the, so the workers in Ithaca have said that during negotiations they plan to fight to eliminate healthcare premiums, secure a written commitment to more to re- regular hours, and for a mandated tip system to ensure that workers get their fair share. Yeah, and. That's awesome, because honestly, the healthcare premium's pretty high. Mm. Yeah, despite Starbucks trumpeting that as like some oh, great benefit to Oh, best healthcare of any uh, shit job you could uh, <laughs> scrape by in. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, on the same day that Ithaca voted, we also got the election for the Overland Park, Kansas which is like a suburb of Kansas city election where we previously reported about this store because the, this location has had multiple organizers illegally fired, which led Mm -hmm. the workers to actually do a temporary strike in response. And unsurprisingly, as, as we've seen at every single location where Starbucks has illegally retaliated against organizers, that didn't scare the workers into voting no. It just galvanized them to vote yes, because once again, they had another victory, voting six to one, where, so this one technically has not been certified because there are seven ballots that were challenged. And so technically, if every single one of those was a no vote, then yes, you could overturn it. However, organizers say that multiple of those votes are from fired organizers, which means that it, you know, even if only two of those are yes votes, which they almost certainly are, then it's it's just a matter of time before they deal with these challenges and this election is certified as a victory. Yeah, I mean, they're probably all fucking yes votes. That one no yeah. vote is probably that same dude from Ithaca. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they keep talking about how they keep flying supervisors and managers and stuff all over the, the mm-hmm. country to try and break down the union efforts. I mean, I don't think it's that out there to think that... <laughs> <laughs> that person is just voting no in all these elections. But like, 
Uh, and I mean, so the, the, there's also a quote here from a barista at the, the Kansas city store who said, we've been struggling for months with this and it makes all the challenges that we have had to face through this entire process worth it. And you know, that they're just the first store in the Kansas city area to have this success. There's three more stores in the region that have filed for union elections as well. And unsurprisingly, you know, they, they say they plan to focus on better working conditions and health care benefits during their bargaining. Well, and it seems like, wow, that was quite a list. We made it through. No, folks, that was seven. <laughs> we still have two more to go. Oh, yeah. 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 So yesterday, because uh, uh, we're recording this on Tuesday, so uh, Monday, April 11th, we had two votes for the first two stores in Massachusetts to get to have their elections. And they even beat the folks in Ithaca with how overwhelming their victories were because th- the first two stores in Massachusetts to have their elections both voted unanimously to be represented <laughs> by Starbucks Workers United, voting 11 to 0 and 14 to 0 to be the first two stores in the Boston area to be represented by the union. Wow. Totaling <laughs> 18 of 19 victories. Mm-hmm. Damn, that is really spectacular. And, you know unanimous votes that that's a sign of some real momentum and a sign that uh the no vote guy from ithaca has thrown in the towel (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely and so i i just think that like a we've now seen just in less than a week the number of unionized starbucks has doubled from nine to 18 and starbucks keeps ramping up its, its union busting retaliation and honestly, they just keep getting worse and worse election results. Like at this point, Howard, I think it's time to, you know, accept that you're not going to be able to crush the union with repression. Yeah, and, well, uh, and just try and cut your losses. Uh, I'm I'm really surprised in many ways that like uh, Howard isn't like trying to like create some kind of like company union or like expanded HR or or any yeah. of that shit. He's he's not even like willing to admit that the problem exists and is just like doing traditional union busting. And it's like, buddy, like you are months and months too late within your own company Mm -hmm. and decades too late within the context (laughs) of American labor politics. Like this just doesn't fucking work anymore. But I mean, he's got the greatest tool in the toolbox. He's going to be bringing NFTs to Starbucks. Oh, (laughs) I heard that, that uh, speech yeah, that he gave to on like the partner forum or whatever it was called. No, yeah. it was well. I mean, yeah, but it was in oh, because that's the, I was thinking uh, of an online forum. But no, yeah, he actually went up on stage and is like, you know, I'm not a digital native, folks. But one of the things I do trust is that we are going to be here in the future, and what the future means is NFTs at Starbucks. Yeah, it's and this is the sort of thing that they tell us is why they have to pay CEOs millions of dollars for this sort of incredible innovation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to make we're going to make the roasted bean yacht club the first <laughs> NFT marketplace. I mean, it's just yeah. such a high level of detachment and like them bringing him back because he's supposed to be like this savvy fucking businessman. Meanwhile, like Amazon and Starbucks both seem to be using like democratic strategist brain Mm -hmm. tactics in terms of their union repression, which is bad, but also kind of good because they don't work very well. And so they're (laughs) getting their asses kicked, which I love to see. (laughs) Yeah. Well, for your weekly dose of entirely fungible tokens, we are going to move to the meme review. (laughs) 
for this first one is a uh, a bulletin posted by a boss uh, and and a response, which I this has been going around, but it's just so awesome. And the, honestly, the first the 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 bulletin by the by the boss is actually ridiculous. It says attention all subordinates, effective immediately. <laughs> Conversing about wages, both on duty and off duty, is strictly forbidden. <laughs> It's so uh, funny that he calls them subordinates. Yeah. yeah uh, this is considered proprietary information and as such is protected legally. If you are overheard speaking or listening to a conversation <laughs> wow. in which wages are discussed, you will receive disciplinary action up to and including termination. As a reminder, Kentucky is an at-will state reminding you that your employment can be terminated for any reason without legal per- without legal percussion. Or... <laughs> No reason. Legal percussion. Have have any question? Ask Jer. I'm gonna bang. I'm gonna bang the big law drum. That's the legal percussion. I didn't notice that the first time that they said legal percussion. That's so funny. Yeah, and then I just love the like even just hearing oh the a wage. If you heard of someone else's wage, you might as well consider yourself fired. Fired. Yeah. I'm just imagining this guy is just coming out here and he's just like, just sees somebody like, you know, taking a five second breather and is just immediately screaming, one million years dungeon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I also, cause the, the, the notice is written so boomerly. Like it's all in the default fucking sans serif font. Uh, there's a lot of caps, all caps involved, especially towards the top of the page. And then you can tell that the response here uh, from from the workers was is not very boomery, not least of all because it's written it's in primarily Comic in Sans. Comic Sans, <laughs> which is such a millennial like way to disrespect someone. <laughs> Maybe even yeah. Gen X. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the top of this one has literally a link to your rights to discuss wages, a link yeah. to the nlrb.gov. It's also on the side <laughs> of the page and the bottom of the page. <laughs> yeah, it, the, the response letter is fantastic because they put like uh, anarcho-communist symbols all over it. <laughs> and so it reads, Yo, Jerbear, <laughs> seeing as you're a manager in the great illustrious world of Planet Fitness gym franchises, it may behoove you to become familiar with the laws pertaining to it. Sprinkling legalese and word salad across an eight and a half by 11 inch paper you printed does not a legal doc make. Since research ain't your forte, I've included a link to the pertinent documents on the left, right, top, and bottom of this paper. Kind of hard to miss. Needless to say, you can't legally tell us not to discuss wages in the good old US of A. We will continue to do so. Furthermore, for the sake of making this a little more streamlined, shall we? And then it's got a typed listing of all the employees with their hourly wage next to their name. (laughs) And then it's just the rest of your subordinates in quotes (laughs) could not be reached, but they're welcome to post their wages above love. They did 1050 an hour. (laughs) Shelly. They did. There's, there's uh, cause like what, it's almost like 10 people in the original list and there's six other people in the, Mm -hmm. uh, that are pen are penned in, uh, in the little blank area. Like, uh, and it turns out most of the people here are being paid 1050. A couple people are being paid $11. And then what uh, are probably 
like people who are in the sales or in like you know getting people to sign up for memberships who get slightly uh get bonuses for signing people up are at 1250 an hour and that's all of the fucking employees they don't have anyone making over 1250 an hour yeah i i mean look i guess not that i'm ever somebody who would feel like i should be giving advice to bosses but like if your business pays less than an amazon warehouse probably don't bother threatening your employees with firing them <laughs> yeah like, for real come on. I, there's, I just there's love, plenty there's so of much good energy there's plenty of shit heels out there who are willing to pay me 1250 for my time. I can go work for <laughs> any fucking one of them. I do not need you. But like, you don't need he, to you don't need to risk legal percussion. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing I hate more than legal percussion. I keep my drums and chimes and wood blocks and xylophones strictly illegal. Black market <laughs> out of the back of a van. They fell At, off a truck. <laughs> after curfew. After over curfew. decibel level. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but so this this next one, very simple. Uh this is a, a tweet from uh, at Mayavada, <laughs> it's if your union endorses this Democrat, they'll use their election position to advocate for labor. And it's a picture of Lucy holding the football in front of Charlie Brown. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I love good old comics. And uh, the next one is a classic IWW comic that I uh, managed to find uh, somewhere on the internet. I don't, probably an IWW group. I don't know. It's uh, just uh, some judge or some IRS agent behind a desk who is wearing a suit, pointing at a piece of paper and some worker sitting in the chair. The IRS agent says, I'm sorry, but you can't list your employer as a dependent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think that's very funny. It's like, uh, but uh, you know that they do depend on the workers yeah <laughs> it's true <laughs> those i mean it's funny because like i don't know but you you feel like old-timey labor humor is going to be like outdated and and clunky but i don't know that's funnier than the vast majority of political cartoons you see now <laughs> it's one of the only things that really holds up and i mean it's to the credit I think of the the laborers and uh you know labor activists who make them but it's also to the detriment of the conditions of how you know yeah. how much the the actual conditions of labor have changed in this country it's a it's a terrible expose of that sometimes yeah and this next one very simple it's just customer acts rude me acts rude back customer and then it's this picture of danny devito just completely shocked i can't believe it <laughs> Honestly, I can't wait for this one to be posted uh, for y'all to see because just the look on Danny DeVito's surprised face is so priceless with that caption. <laughs> it's really perfect. And then to just cap it all off, I, it, this doesn't look like it is actually Da Share Zone, but it's in the style yeah, of Da Share Zone. No, it's, Zone. A, it's, it's, uh, it's at the top in the in the Oh, faded yeah, text. I just didn't see it in the gradient. Yeah, they hit it in the <laughs> gradient. Okay, so it's a skeleton T-posing over a city and it just says outlaw landlords, nationalize hospitals, and improve lunchables. And the, there's an apostrophe <laughs> S at the end of each of those statements, which I gotta say... You won me over with outlaw landlords. You kept me here with nationalized hospitals and the cherry on top of improving Lunchables. It was too perfect because I'm I'm a person who still eats Lunchables. I have been known to buy two pizza Lunchables and just house them. 
I should only have to buy one pizza Lunchable. <laughs> there should be <laughs> enough food house. in there. <laughs> That's right. Uh, I can confirm he is, uh, w- during prep, I've seen John eat pizza Lunchables. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Uh, If you would like to support our show, we are entirely listener-supported, so you can do that over at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Every little bit you can give us helps. Uh, $5 will get you the overtime episodes where you can get all sorts of interesting... like episodes where we go over the nature of the state, the decline in American unionism, which is so good and important. Really, like that is awesome. And like Dan said, we're going to be doing that uh, ALU episode as a shop floor discussion, which is also one of the Patreon benefits. So become a patron for that. If you can't afford that, jump in the Discord. That's free. You can check out all the meme reviews and all that. Uh, message one of us and let us know. We'd be happy to hook you up with this very important information. But we do really, really really need the support we're a small podcast and we're trying to get this moving uh yep uh shoot us review uh follow john on twitter at facebook villain follow the pod at work stoppage pod listen to beep beep lettuce listen to red game table and as always labor peace is not in our interest solidarity forever improve lunchables (laughs) (laughs) solidarity everybody (laughs) 